Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right, enjoy the episode. Over the past 15 years, Nashville super producer Dave Cobb has managed to inject some much-needed soul into country music. Dave Cobb has earned six Grammys for his standout work with artists like Jason Isbell, Brandi Carlile, and Chris Stapleton, whose song Tennessee Whiskey we're listening to now. And as you'll hear today, Dave pulls inspiration from sources not normally associated with country music. Dave worshipped Ozzy Osbourne as a kid, despite growing up in a devout Pentecostal family. And in the early 90s, he cut his teeth as a session guitarist in Atlanta, working with hip-hop and R&B producers Jermaine Dupree and Dallas Austin. Rick Rubin and Dave Cobb connected over Zoom recently, to talk about Dave's unconventional path to becoming a country music producer. They also talk about the power of being an outsider and the value of goofing around in the studio. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Dave Cobb. So how's everything been going? How you feeling? I'm good. I just surviving the apocalypse. You know, it's it's uh it's a weird time. I'm sure it's weird for you guys as well. You know, I just it sometimes feel like you know we have a job. We go in the studio. We don't see the outside world. It feels kind of normal until you actually leave, and then then I realize you know we're we're on the other side of something. 
Have you been able to work straight through? You know, I took, I, there was a lockdown here, so I didn't work during that time, but, uh, you know, I went back shortly afterwards and, and it's, uh, you know, it's always in the back of your mind, right? Everything about it. But, um, you know, I, I think I'm always sensitive to, I, I think maybe it's our job to read the room and read everything around you. And you can just see people come in a little bit disoriented, you know, we have to kind of shake it off, you know, tequila usually helps with that though. Yeah. I feel like uh, as soon as the music starts playing, it it changes everything. Like whatever whatever else is going on in the world is uh, diminished in that moment when the groove is good. You know, absolutely, absolutely, man. You're you're right about that. What's going on out there? Everything's cool, usual, usual stuff. Just you know, trying to make good stuff. Well, you always seem to pull that off. <laughs> Try my best. <laughs> You got you got the best career of all time. I just want to say, it, doing being a producer, you you have the best career of all time. Tell me why you why do you say that? Because you get to do Run DMC, you get to do Country, and you get to do Slayer. It's like, come on, and you know who doesn't want that career? You know, it's just the music I like. You know, it's just the music I like. Yeah, but you get to do the music you like. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm very I'm very fortunate. Absolutely. So t- tell me, how did you end up in this, uh, in this funny position that you're in? Um, you know, I never, I never wanted to be a producer. It wasn't something I woke up and said, you know, I'm going to do this when I grow old. I, you know, I wanted to be in a band and, and, and have a career being a guitar player in a band. And, and, you know, of course we find that we, we signed a typical bad record deal and kind of got stuck. And if I did anything, it would go to the label. If I didn't do anything, it would go to the label. So I started producing friends of mine's bands and then, they got record deals. The next thing you know, I'm living in Nashville. So, I, you know, it. it but uh, you know, through that whole world, I, I went through being a session player for a long time as well, and learning from people like Jermaine Dupri and Dallas Austin, and and uh, and just kind of figuring it out. Figuring like, you know, what if I'm a producer, I get to go home and I sleep in my own bed. That was really the big sell for me, you know, because I never liked touring. I never liked travel. So. It's interesting that the people you came up under were Jermaine and Dallas, considering what you're doing now. It's just, it's again, it's another world. Well, I'm, I'm from, I'm from Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, but I lived in Atlanta when, in my formidable years kind of coming up and, and those guys were just owning the town, you know, and, and this guy, Darren Prindle bought me in to play guitar on a session for Dallas. And, and that's kind of how it started. And I was fascinated with that world, man. I loved I love the era of uh, of R and B, you know, in, in Atlanta. It was it was on fire in the early '90s, so it was cool to kind of see some of that stuff firsthand and, and the talent that was in the room, you know. But uh, I always my my passion was always to make rock and roll records. So I moved out to Los Angeles, thinking that was the the kingdom of rock and roll, and and I go out to L.A. and I wind up producing this guy Shooter Jennings and having kind of a, you know, a, a country single on the radio and it kind of started going and then the country thing kind of fell on my lap. I mean, growing up in Georgia, I didn't, I didn't really love country. It wasn't my thing at all. I mean, it wasn't really, really even my parents thing. My parents were, you know, I had a, my grandmother was a Pentecostal minister. So we heard a lot of church music, but aside from that, not a lot of secular stuff escaped except for the super mainstream country in the late seventies and early eighties. And man, I wanted nothing to do with it. You know, I wanted to listen to ACDC and Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and Beatles. And, and uh, eventually through meeting Shooter Jennings, I, he introduced me to the good country, which I call the good country. And you know, the obviously Waylon Jennings and Jerry Reed and George Jones and all the stuff I really love now. So I fell in love with it. Once I found the rock and roll and country, 
I think I got it. You know, when I heard Waylon and his band, his band were playing rock and roll for all intents and purposes. There was a phaser on the guitar. There was a, you know, almost like a driving country funk groove to the drums. I got it. All of a sudden it made sense. There were rough edges. I guess I was always looking for music that had rough edges. Rough edges always attracted me, whether it was, you know, hip hop, R&B, soul, country, bluegrass, whatever it was, I want rough edges. You know, I like the mistakes, you know. Tell me a little bit about what you saw when you were working with Dallas, your uh, studio guitar player. Technologically, what was going on there? And how does that relate to how you make music today? Well, I didn't get a, a ton of time with him. You know, I, I was mainly in the studio cutting tracks. There was a guy named T. Smith that was signed to his label, Rowdy Records. And and I got to kind of work with him and develop the demos. Um, but I remember taking those demos and and they they wound up using one of the tracks. Uh, and and I just recorded it with one mic, on, I don't know, on a cassette, cassette four track or something. And I remember going to the studio with his engineers. And next thing you know, they were using gates to trigger you know, NPCs to put samples in it and to kind of build the track. And and I remember it being so cool. They're able to do this. I mean, this is something that took God knows all day, you know, to do and just to watch how technology has changed so much is, is amazing, but it was cool to watch the way those guys thought. I mean, they were doing everything we're doing right now. It just took a little bit longer, you know, and I remember going in and watching uh, them do vocals with, with artists. Uh, I remember, walking in a Deborah Cox session and Deborah Cox had filled up an entire 24 track with backgrounds. And that was the sound of those big records he was doing at that time had track after track and layer after layer. And that's with no technology. That's just singing and just building it. And it was, it was cool. It was, it was watching an absolute, you know, masterpiece come, come to life in front of you and, and seeing how all that came together. This is when sampling became a no, no, all of a sudden everyone was getting sued for samples. So, uh, me and a couple other kids would go in and jam and they'd say, you know, can you play something like Curtis Mayfield? So then I go down a Curtis Mayfield deep dive or so can you, can you play something kind of like the JBs or the meters? And that was an education in music to learn those records and try to figure out, I mean, no one can play like any of those bands or any of those guys, but it was cool. We just jam all day and they had a DAT going the entire time. And then they would take the DAT and then they may take one bar of it and turn it into a new sample. And it was, it was cool, but it wasn't really the record making process that got me. It was the education of incredible bands and artists I heard through people that knew a lot more about me than music, you know, and, and learning the studying Curtis Mayfield's guitar playing. I mean, it's something I sneak in country all the time, you know, whether I'm doing a rock record or a country record, it's the soul. I'm always trying to get the soul that's on a soul record because to me that that's, that's the magic, you know, it's that, that's that swing that, you're kind of missing the one a little bit and you're coming right behind it, you know, with, with a bass or whatever it is, it's that pocket. Beautiful. So you were saying that where you grew up, there was not, there was not music in your house other than church music. Is this correct? When you were growing up? Pretty much. My, you know, my parents weren't, I mean, they're amazing. And my mom absolutely supported me playing music. She'd sneak off and buy me a drum kit or take me to a bass lesson or whatever. So she was there. She was supportive. But the music I mainly heard was, uh, you know, at church because I felt like I couldn't get out of church. I had to go to church. You know, since I'm the 
the grandson of the of the preacher I had to be there Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, vacation Bible study, Christian school. It's like you couldn't get away, you know, couldn't get away from it. So what I did like about that is I love hymnals still to this day. I think I think they're just beautiful, the cadence of it all. And obviously that's that's a huge building block of country music. So I understand that. But we had a piano, we had a pedal steel in the church and and acoustic guitar, no drums, but uh it just the music was definitely seeped in me, but I would I would go out and find Black Sabbath and Ozzy. I think I got maybe Ozzy first. Maybe it was you know Blizzard of Oz was the first record I discovered by Ozzy and had to hide the the record, had to hide it, and I had a I had a Ozzy poster and I had to hide it in the attic. You know I, I would for sure be going to hell if they were found. Was that your first memory of your own music? Was Ozzy? No, the first memory I ever had with music, I'm, I maybe was really young. Uh, my aunt, she uh, she had gone through a divorce and she came to live with us for a little while. And she bought some of her records and it was during disco era. You know, this is late 70s. And uh, I remember she had really great records. But the records I really remember was uh, the 45 for New Kid in Town by the Eagles, which is my first favorite song. I didn't know there was the Beatles at that young age. But those harmonies, I was so attracted to. It's such a brilliant, brilliant arrangement on that song. So I remember that that record being probably the first record that that I go, whoa, what is this? You know, and just obsessed with it until uh, somebody stepped on it and broke it. But that, you know, that and Disco Duck, <laughs> those might have been the first formidable records of my life. You know, Disco Duck was a good one. He's a, yeah, he's in top ten for me of all time. Thanks to that, you know. And then and then it graduated to Ozzy and. Would you say mostly hard rock, heavy metal was the was the uh... the Beatles were the thing. My 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 dad did like my dad did like uh, the Beach Boys. That was one of the ones. And he lo- he loved Buddy Holly and he loved Elvis. So I did hear a little bit of that on Greatest Hits cassettes, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the Beatles were kind of my thing because I remember listening to Day in the Life by the Beatles and thinking like, how does humans make that music? It just doesn't seem. I don't know how what what kind of stars have to align to to, to for that to happen. You know that song. Everything about it is perfect. I mean, Ringo's my favorite drummer of all time. Every drum fill is singable on that song. The bass line is defying what any other bass player was doing at the time. You know, you have this crescendo of strings that it goes into explosion into a whole different tempo and different feel and alarm clock and your psychedelic Oz at the end. I just, I was captivated by it. It doesn't get better. It, it doesn't get better and it doesn't get old. Ozzy too, yeah, Ozzy too. Hearing you know, like Suicide Solution and and all those songs again, I thought I was doing something really dangerous, and I think that's what I liked about it, you know. And but you know, Ozzy was you were you got a chance to work with Ozzy, which I'm so jealous of that. But Ozzy, um, even though it was heavy, it was catchy, and they're, they're beautiful pop songs and that stuff, you know. Hearing uh, Mr. Crowley, I mean, it's just a beautiful classical arrangement to that song, you know. The keyboard at the beginning. You know, and and Randy Rhodes' guitar solo—you could sing every riff of it, and everything Ozzy sang was just catchy, 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 catchy. When he does melodies, he always seems to descend. People look to me and say he goes down, and everybody else goes up. He just—he did pop in a different, different way. You know, hundred percent. He—he meant so much to me as a kid. I think that first Black Sabbath record is probably the heaviest record of all time. You know, I know there's Meshuga and bands that are really heavy and powerful and awesome, but that record is so terrifying. You know, the big church bell and everything, just terrifying. It scared me. The song Black Sabbath is as heavy as it gets. 
period. And I, and I remember, you know, again, I grew up so heavy in church and they used to actually have Sunday school meetings about, you know, Ozzy was worshiping the devil and you, you play obviously all the backmasking stuff and kiss were knights in Satan service. You know, we heard all that stuff. So it, it made it extra scary to me, <laughs> you know, I think, I think that's why I was so attracted to, to it. It just seemed like, you know, oh man, this is dangerous, you know? It's funny to see the footage of him in the uh, Ozzy documentary before he goes out on stage where he gets on his knees and he prays and he crosses himself. Amazing. It's so beautiful. Absolutely. But we didn't know that. We we thought no. he was, you know, he legitimately ate bats daily, you know, <laughs> but that must have been cool. But also you got Tony Iommi in the band and he's a butler and Bill Ward. I mean, he's absolute legends, but I think Tony Iommi might be the riff master of all time too. I, I think so. I think he is. I mean, Jimmy Page was number one for me. Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page was for sure number one guitar player. But man, Tony Iommi, just those riffs, terrifying. It's amazing when those guys, as soon as the Black Sabbath guys plug in and play, it can't sound like anything other than Black Sabbath. You know, it's so ingrained. It's like we think of, you know, so many bands try to play like Black Sabbath. But that's just how they play, and whenever anyone plays like them, it doesn't sound really anything like it. When they do it, it just it's it's just the natural way that it comes out. It's unbelievable, thrilling. I think there's something to Bill Ward's playing. It's got this hurry up and slow down. Boom! It just so catches you and then slows up and speeds down. And it's so heavy. It's so heavy. Every fill he had. It just. It's beautiful, beautiful, so beautiful. I, I, that whole band, man, such a fan. And then after after Ozzy, what was your next? Uh... I think I got into band. It was an exciting time, you know, coming in the late 80s, early 90s. All of a sudden there were bands like Fishbone, which I adored Fishbone. I thought they were great. I loved that band. I thought they were mixing up everything. And I think music was exciting for a while where – the beginnings of Lollapalooza where you had Waylon Jennings and Nine Inch Nails and Fishbone on the radio starting to be the beginning of alternative music and the radio playing this music that seemed to be going like this and just spreading out and music was evolving. I mean, you had a lot to do with it with Red Hot Chili Peppers. They were one of those bands it's like that. They didn't really sound like anybody else. They sounded like all the cool elements of lots of music that you liked. And then for some reason, maybe that format just changed one day and became like, okay, here's the rules. And you got to play by these to have a hit. But at that point, it felt like you could have a hit by not playing by the rules. So anything that didn't play by the rules, I got into. And, and particularly Trent Reznor, I was really into Nine Inch Nails. I really thought it was just, again, super dangerous. You know, even though there were clicks and programming, it didn't feel like that. It felt soulful. Absolutely. Uh, maybe back up before that, Van Halen was a big one for me, too, growing up. I just, uh, you know, Eddie's a guitar player who I think every kid who started playing guitar in the eighties wanted to learn how to play like him, but nobody could. And I, and I, and I sat and I studied that stuff like textbooks and learned every riff and I've never been able to use tapping in a song. <laughs> he was able to do it and it was awesome and catchy and, 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 uh, it's so much melody in what that guy did. And again, super soulful player. So I was really attracted to that too. And, and Guns N' Roses, I adored, you know. I have a typical Southern story of, you know, a cousin of mine worked at a tape store and he had appetite for destruction and he picked up, you know, two girls that were older than us. I was 13 and we had wine coolers on a dirt road and listened to appetite for destruction. I don't know what's more rock and roll than that. And obviously, you know, I don't think I even like looked 
where the girl was. I was too scared. But just the list hearing that, I think I was more occupied with the cassette of, of Guns N' Roses than I was, you know, anything at the time, you know. When did you start playing guitar? Uh, 13. Drums are my first instrument. I started really young on that and then bass and then guitar. I figured I couldn't really write a song just playing drums. Were there instruments in your house? My granddaddy Cobb, my dad's dad, he always played. And my grandmother, the preacher, she was a beautiful singer. She, she had written songs that had gotten published. You know, she actually got a publishing deal from Disney in the 40s in the middle of the war and had to turn it down. So she had had a bunch of Christian songs published. So there was a, it was around me. She gave me a guitar young and my other granddaddy gave me a guitar and my parents gave me a couple of lessons. And so there was always around, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't remember a time not playing music. You know, I wish I was at this age. I wish I was good at something else. Not that I'm good at music, but I wish I had a hobby. I mean, you might need to tell me some hobbies to take up. I've tried, I've tried motorcycles and I like to look at them. You know, I, 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 I don't do sports. I don't watch sports. You know, I need a hobby. So if you got a hobby, Rick, let me know. Do you like to read? No, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dyslexic. So yeah, I'm looking at looking at reading. It's just like, it's, it might as well put me in a jail cell. There's audio books. Audio books might be your, your you way know, in. I think, I think it's the OCD, man. I need to find something to, that, that totally takes me away for a second. But pretty much if I have a day off, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, chase something music related every day. You know, uh, but I do need something. Uh, maybe it's dominoes. I don't fucking know. So guitar starts at 13. The first things you're playing are uh, along with like Ozzy records, Van Halen records. Is that the yeah, first? Yeah, definitely. Which is terrifying because no one should start with those records. You know, I, I think when I say I was playing along, it was probably really shittily, you know, but you know, I, I think learning, you know, uh, crazy train or something early on that those were the ones that stick with you just falling on out on out you can kind of handle that it's two it's two strings for the most part for that when it gets the other part forget about it but I think I learned lots of parts of songs I don't think I was one to ever learn every single note of it so I know I, I know like lots of songs starts you know and that's where it ends uh, and I think that's probably, probably what made me get into writing and stuff like that more because I can you know I, I didn't have the patience to even learn the whole song so Again, but you know, all that stuff filtered in ACDC. I forgot about ACDC, massive one for me. Massive, massive ACDC fan. I had a guitar teacher that he had a black SG and he would only teach me ACDC. So I go pick up, you know, sneaking by Dirty Deeds, Dunder Cheap, and walk in there. And that's how he would teach me. So we skipped Mary Had a Little Lamb, went straight to Highway to Hell. You know, um, ACDC, huge. Angus and Malcolm, huge to me, huge. And I still play a G chord like the, the Young Brothers. They don't play. Yeah, they they skip a couple strings, and and I still play like them, you know, in that sense. Do you know that um, Malcolm would use heavy strings and Angus would use light strings, and they would pick their chords so that between the two of them, it would be like the two hands on a piano. Really, I did not know that. That is so cool. Somebody told me, and maybe you could validate this, that it might have been their brother George who would sneak a piano under the guitar sometimes. Is that true? I know that they would try out their songs on piano as compositions to see if the song stood up. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know if it was ever on the records. I think somebody should make a piano version of ACDC Greatest Hits. That'd be great. <laughs> that might be, that might, might be your next project. I know, too bad I can't play piano. But yeah, Bedtime with ACDC, you know, that's a, that's a good one. You know, I don't know how well that would put you to hell's bells to, to sing a kid to sleep, but it would be fun to listen to. 
Maybe Chris Stapleton singing Hell's Bells would be really good. I could imagine You know that. what? He could sing the shit out of ACDC. I bet. He's a hell of a rock and roll singer. He can sing the phone book, you know? We'll be right back with Dave Cobb after a short break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with Rick Rubin and Dave Cobb. So you got to work with the, the cult, right? That was Early the first, first, first rock album I ever produced was the cult electric. And tell tell me about walking into a situation because I know you had done rap early on. Walking to that band at that time because I I liked I lo- I loved that band. I was a big fan of the Colt, but that record did not sound like what the band sounded like prior to you making that record. Yeah. How do you go in from producing Beastie Boys, walking in and going like, okay, you guys are going to change everything? How does that happen? It happened in stages, and it wasn't. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the whole story. They had liked the hip hop records I was making and they reached out and asked if I would do a remix. They had already finished the album that was going to be electric. 
a completely different album than the one that we made. And they came and asked me to remix two songs from their new album. And then they loved the remixes and said, and it started like, let's remix it, but they came. So I had them replay stuff to make it more like the way I wanted it. And then we made the new version of those. And then they said, well, maybe this is just what the whole album should be. And then we just made that, made that album. It, it, it didn't start with the idea of either making an album. It started as a remix project. Wow. But I mean, the, you know, the guitars on that were just, to me, it was like the first record post seventies or early eighties that had that rock guitar. Yeah. Well, I always loved, I loved rock music and they thought of themselves as a rock band and as a, as a rock fan, I said, well, what you guys do is cool, but it's not this. And if you want it to be this, we can do this. And they're like, well, yeah, let's do that. Wow. Yeah, man, that was such a great record, such an inspiring record, you know, coming up because it felt dangerous. You know, again, music maybe at that time was starting to get a little safer and you made sure it wasn't in the best way. Yeah, I was still well, living I, at the dorm at NYU and I would walk from the dorm to Electric Lady where we recorded that album. It was a good experience. How did you wind up in L.A.? Like what, what made that happen from from New York? I came out to do a soundtrack album for the Less Than Zero movie. And oh, I, was, I love that movie. Cool. I was living in a, in a hotel for nine months and eventually decided to buy a house, not thinking I was going to live in L.A., but when I came to L.A., I would stay in a house instead of living in a hotel because if you've lived in a hotel for any period of time, it's not a great, it's not a great way to live. So got a house thinking this would be the place I would come instead of going with the hotel. It was right across the street from the hotel, but it was a house, so it felt more private. And then really just never went back. I never, I never officially moved to California until after being there for about five years and realizing, well, I guess I live here now. Man, that Less, less Than Zero soundtrack, the Hazy Shade of Winter cover on that. Yeah, I produced that. Oh man. Yeah. I love the bangles. Love, love the bangles. And, and that's, a, that must've been intimidating too, because that's a Simon and Garfunkel song. And like, you know, just to, to all of a sudden, I felt like I didn't know that Simon and Garfunkel wrote that song when I heard your version of it. I wow. thought that they had written that song and it feels like their song it must've been a huge hill to climb to make that their song, you know? It, it, it actually was pretty natural. They picked it themselves. I had, I had picked a song that I thought would be great for us to do together that was gonna, that was a Yardbird song, uh, but I imagined them doing it in har with harmonies and it would have been a really cool thing. And then they're like, well, why don't we just do Hazy Shared Winter? I was like, okay, fine. And then that ended up being what it was. And also, if, if I'm, my memory serves me, uh, Aerosmith was on that too, right? Yes, and I grew up, you know, Aerosmith was one of my favorite bands growing up. So that was the that the first time, I guess we'd already done Walk This Way. So it was the was, second uh, time I got to work with them. At that time, were they getting along when you guys recorded that song? Is that good Aerosmith time or were they, they fighting? I think they were always sort of cool, not cool, you know? Like th there was never a time where they weren't speaking that I knew. And there was always this sort of tension rivalry <laughs> in the band but it was always okay to be around them i know i know you've done a lot of country stuff what what was the country record that got you obviously you work with cash but was there a specific country record that kind of got you i mean growing up i liked 
like the the pop country that you would hear when I was a kid, like Glenn Campbell, was yes. was great. I watched Hee Haw, you know, so the the guys on Hee Haw, and always like the you know the the picking, you know, like dueling banjos, like that that kind of. Uh, I was like folk music as well, so probably came through those roots. But I would never, I would never think of myself as a fan of country music because so much of the country music at the time that I was really involved in looking for music was a kind of a plastic sound that, that didn't really speak to me. Yeah. I feel like one, what's one of the great, one of your great contributions is uh, you've made country music great again. And, and I really appreciate oh, that I'm as sure a listener. Really great again. I, I love, speaking of Glenn Campbell, man, Wichita Lyman, that might be the perfect song. I think God Only Knows and Wichita Lyman might be the best, best songs of all time, you know? Absolutely perfect. And then knowing that he played on, you know, Monkey's albums that I right. grew up loving, you know? Yeah, uh, there's a great picture in my studio where the Monkeys came and they did, I think they did, well, I can't remember the song, but they did one of the songs with Mike Nesmith in my studio and there's pictures in the wall of all those guys, Felton Jarvis, the producer, bringing monkeys in the studio. I feel like we don't have fun now. Like those guys had fun. I feel like we're 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 you know not really uh, living the dream the way they did. You know, you caught the '80s, which are probably a blast. I don't know. It's always I have a feeling it's always dudes in a room working hard to make something good is ultimately what it is, and everything else is just a a fantasy. Yeah, I don't know, man. I read the stories of people with drug habits and yellow Lamborghinis, and we missed them all, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know that even those guys would say those were the fun times. They probably don't remember them, you know? Are there any, are there any litmus records that you have? You're like, I like the drum sound on this record. I like the guitar sound on this record and the vocal sound on this record. Anything that jumps out? There there was a time that I thought that way, and then I, I've learned since... I'll tell you, I'll tell you, like there was a time when, yeah, I want to learn all the secrets. Okay. Man. Well, uh, I really like the highway to hell album. I think for me, maybe the perfect rock album. Yeah, it's so, there. so sonically, you know, that's good sounding guitars, good sounding drums. If you try to make other drums sound like those drums, not only will they not sound like n- not sound like the highway to hell drums, they won't sound like the good version of what they actually are. So I've come to realize that I'm not trying to get a sound that's like on, that's been anywhere else. It's more using the stuff we have here. What's the best that we can make this stuff sound? And it really does open up the floodgates in terms of, you know, feeling like you need special equipment or uh, special mics or a special, uh, you know, it has to be a Neve console. Or it has to be an API console. It's like, they do, they do, or it has to be done on tape or any of those things. It's like those things all have a sound, but they're not required. Yeah, and we can make something good using pretty much anything. And and I and I continually hear things that blow my mind that were made in really uh, suboptimal ways. So th- those are you know proof <laughs> that it can be done. So um, I try not to get too um, fanatical about either equipment or the right way to do anything. I almost feel like if there's a right way to do it, chances are doing it a different way might be more interesting. Yeah. So always looking for the opportunity to find a new way to make something interesting. 
You know, I've never been able to nail anything I've ever tried to chase. <laughs> I think you're I think you're right about that. I've never been able to nail any of the great sounds and records I've tried to chase. Not once. Yeah, I think it's a losing battle. I think it's a, it, it ends up being just a waste of time. When I first started producing records, uh, was a really unfortunate time in music around 1999, I think is when I started taking it seriously. And I remember at that particular time, I mean, you probably were the only person to not doing that and have a success, but you had to have a click and then you had to have, you know, the drums mic'd a certain way and you had to have, uh, a little loop in the background you had to everything had to be perfect you had to do everything in an assembly line fashion you had to do the drums and the bass and the guitar and finally get to it later and i remember starting off that way and i just i just sucked i sucked and the records sound like shit and i just didn't know how to do it i couldn't figure it out and i think when i said you know what i'll just starve is, is when i started having success making records with everybody playing together I only did it because I thought it was, you know, uh, this will be a demo or whatever. And maybe, maybe, maybe somebody will hear it and actually make the record. But yeah, I could, I sucked at the, the rules. I just, and I tried to play them. It's not like I was defiant or playing a renegade. I just didn't know how to do it. And I don't understand technology. Yeah. Know? Same. And I think also what you, what you just said, like so often the demos of songs are better than the records. Way better. And it happens Usually. all the time. Yeah. It's like the, the, the beauty of, capturing a moment that sounds like a moment in time it's not just everything's perfect and everything's in time and everything's in tune but it's actually the one time they played it like this that's a thrilling feeling and it's one of the things that i think is so great about bands from like black sabbath and led zeppelin era is they didn't they didn't think of songs as a such a tightly structured thing the length of a solo would go however long the solo felt good. That's interesting. It's like if you hear the live if you hear the live versions of the songs, they're ve often very different from the record versions. I guess the record versions were the live versions of that day, right? Exactly, exactly. And there was a f there was a freedom in the way that was done, and it seems like somewhere along the way, the idea that the record and live and everything was just supposed to be exactly the same and all perfect has has ticking some of the energy out of the process. You know, I never liked pre-production on records. I think it's the antichrist. I just hate it for the same reasons you just said, you know, you always miss the best vocal performance. The first time somebody sings a song, you always miss the intent and the riff after you've rehearsed it 20 times. You know, I think trying to treat record making as if you were making a demo is, is kind of my preferred way, you know? It's easy. I feel like it's cheating, you know, because I, I've had so many instances and still do where somebody, especially now everybody's got technology at home and they're able to do these incredible demos at their house. And, you, and I, probably my worst thing is when somebody goes, let's listen to the demo. <laughs> let's get, let's get back to, you know, let's, let's, let me listen to what I did here. It's like, ah, you know, you, you've got it there. Let's just use it. You know, it's, you've got it. You nailed it. Let's just use it. It's I funny. Love I just had a conversation with an artist last week about their demos being too good <laughs> and i said you know you the, the demos are so good like they're so produced that you can't even tell if the song is good enough because the production is so good that you it sounds finished like it sounds great that's fascinating you can't even tell this that's there's a lot of validity to what you're saying it's true it's like it may the song may be great 
but you don't know because the harmonies are stacked and they're so beautiful and the, the interaction between the parts and this new instrument comes in, it sounds so cool and so many things that we like happen, we think, oh, that's, that's a great song, but it's, it has nothing to do with the song at that point. That is so fascinating. Yeah, I think, I think people are fooled by sounds over songs quite a bit. I think you're right about that. You know, and I think it, for the simple fact that some people can't hear a song in its rawest form and get where it's going too, I think it's, is a fault with, you know, a lot of people down the road. Cause it, it seems like, you know, particularly in, in some country music stuff, they have these, these demos, the demos are done records and people hear it. And it sounds like a record and like, ah, that's it. That's great. You know, but again, if you, if you just pulled out an acoustic guitar and played it, maybe you wouldn't feel the same way. So I'm, I love, I love the iPhone demos. Those are my favorite ones. I love it when it's just somebody, you know, you hear press it, record, lay it down on the table and, and all the, uh, you know, not quite finished. I love that kind of stuff. I love when there's somewhere you can get involved and, 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 and run with it, you know? Yeah. As long as you hear this, the seed idea that's like, oh, there's something good here. So who's on your bucket list? You've, you've literally worked with everyone's heroes. Who's on your bucket list to make a record with? Hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's not, it's not like a bucket list thing. It's more like uh, I'll hear something that'll get me excited about an artist and I get excited in the moment. It's usually not a long-term thing. What's the last artist that, that's done that to you? The last one I can think of that really got me excited was James Blake. And then I got to work oh, with yeah. him and that was really exciting because I loved his music. Yeah, he's kind of making his own lane, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I like I like people who who make something that's I, I love Nine Inch Nails for that reason too. At the time that Nine Inch Nails came along, there was nothing like it. Oh, most of my favorite music is pretty um, outside of the mainstream, but so good that it ends up becoming the mainstream. I mean, I think Chili Peppers are one of those bands for sure. You know, well, System of a Down is a great example because they went from like I can remember producing the first record and the program director at K-Rock, which is a big rocks, you know, alternative rock station in Los Angeles saying, this is a band we will never play on our station no matter what. And then one year later, it was the both number one played and most requested band on the station. And, uh, but it, but it, if you heard it, it didn't sound like it belonged in the context of everything else going on. It was much too left of center. But I think the song that was on the radio was so catchy. You managed to make you know every part of that song catchy. Well, they, they, it's them. It was really them. It's like they're the songwriting is so good, and they play so well. Even though it it wasn't familiar, it was and it was groovy. It was really danceable, and uh, I, I, it's one of the things I like is heavy music that's danceable. And, um, you know, so much of heavy metal is not, you know, the, the Iron Maidens and the Judas Priests tend to have a kind of a straight coldness to them, whereas ACDC, Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin have a groove Swagger. about it. And even Slayer, as fast as it is, it's groovy. It is, of all the speed metal bands, they're the groovy one. Agreed. So how, how come there's never been a Rick Rubin album? You ever thought about doing that? Never really thought about it. I, I think it would maybe be too hard to come up with what I would. I would want it to do too many things that it couldn't do. You that's know? the beautiful thing about it. 
you know just pick call pick left, one thing and just do it and have have all the of all the people you work with that you love make fantasy league bands of them take you take joe perry put him in a band with you know uh angus young and and then put you know the drummer for you know the chad smith in there or whatever just make make hodgepodge dream team you know yeah i can't i can't imagine doing it <laughs> oh come on i think it'd be fun you know tell me about your you did an album with uh i guess we'd call it a a concept album I did. There's there's a record I adore written by an English guy named Paul Kennelly called White Mansions. And it's just uh, it was really cool. Again, it, for me, it was a gateway record to country music because it was produced by Glenn Johns and done in England at Olympic Studios, which I think some of the best records in history were, were made out of the studio. But it had Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter and it had uh, Eric Clapton and his band playing on the record and steve cash and all these these great uh southern people going over to england and making this record and it just it was a concept about yeah the beginning middle and end of the civil war and the and the reconstruction and it's just a beautiful story and and it's cinematic and i always love records that are cinematic i think that's why i love you know nancy sinatra bang bang or something it's like a cinematic even though it's one guitar that record really took me somewhere. So I've always wanted to do a concept record. So I kind of got some people that I love that are great singers to all sing about stories of their childhood and growing up. And it could have been about a grandparent, a son or a daughter or a parent, whatever, uh, these Southern stories. And so we made a record called Southern Family. And it was it was really cool just to make a record for art's sake and not for commercial sake, not for any other reason. And I'm, I'm really blown away that these people let me work with them uh for one and second of all the uh, label actually put it out because it sounds like okay i'm gonna go to the label i got a concert record okay it's about southern people okay we're gonna have a lot of people on it okay how are you gonna market it like it, there really is no there's no way to to make a, a concert record go i don't think you know but it was just pure art piece and and, uh, and i'm glad i got to do it and i'm really proud of that record beautiful can you can you play us something off of white mansions just because i don't know that album i'd love to hear what the inspiration yeah, for the project. there's was. a song called story to tell it's what the first song in the record and i'll show you what i like about it okay just to me it's a masterpiece beautiful. And the, the thing that's brilliant about it there's so much restraint in that song and if you if you pay attention the strings kind of sneak in and they're really cool because the strings aren't doing a typical string arrangement it's not 50 things going 50 different ways and the the cello aren't splitting off from the violins the violas it stays as one and this unison note and it'll stay on one note and at the end it finally goes somewhere and it's so powerful and the snare is not existent in the song it's just side stick side stick wait 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 and then snare drum and then strings open up and it's so it's it's a master class in production i think because it's just the tension it's supposed to be tension because it's the first story in 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 the in the tale of the record but it's just it makes you worry it makes you worry it makes you worry and it makes you kind of i, I don't know it just it becomes expansive from something that's so small and the and the piano at the beginning just the diamonds on the piano the held chords is so simple it's so brilliant and her vocal you can hear every tremble in it beautiful how do you come across it uh, Shooter Jennings played it for me. Beautiful. First time I ever heard it. He, uh, he, you know, that's his mom on that. And he played it for me. And it was, again, that was a record that got me into country music, you know, written by an English guy. 
you know, recorded in England. It just seems like a sideways way to get into it, but that was the record. That record to me is is a cornerstone. Yeah, there's something about when music travels a distance. Right. It takes on a different, almost a f- fantasy-like approach. Like the, the Beatles were making American blues and rock music or Led Zeppelin were making American blues music, but they took it to an extreme that no true bluesman men would ever do that. It would be, it would be uh, garish (laughs) for a bluesman, you know, it's like, but because they're seeing it from a distance, almost like a spaghetti Western, you know, like a, it's, it's viewed from this, it's from a distance and you're imagining what it could be. Same is true in hip hop. Like, the original hip hop was an inner city thing and the the inner city groups like uh, Africa Bambata and Soul Sonic Force, they would dress like more like parliament. Like they would dress like p- people for, like from outer space. Yeah. They didn't embrace where they were from. And then it took like Run DMC who were more suburban kids to dress more like B-boy gangsters from the hood because they really came from the suburbs and there's this like seeing it from a distance you can romanticize the story and embellish it in ways that are really thrilling for the for the audience for us you know that's fascinating i never really thought like about that i saw this great documentary recently on connie plank the you know, kind of the, the the producer did a lot of the uh, the, the the German rock work too. Yeah, yes. and uh, when I was a kid, I loved Houdini, the, the hip hop group Houdini. I, I loved them. I was way into it. I didn't realize that they went to Germany to record with Connie Plank, and it's like six degrees of separation from Kraftwerk to to Houdini. And I didn't I didn't even put two and two together. But again, I think I liked them because they sounded like they're from outer space. You know what I mean? Like it was the every the sounds were so weird and and it didn't sound like you know the i don't know it didn't sound like where i grew up in savannah <laughs> it sounded like it was yeah. coming again from a whole whole different place you know i love music that does that and i guess maybe you're right i mean that has it's very southern but something else is stirred in there you know yeah it's southern in a way that someone who doesn't live through it could love it do you know like yeah. If you're living through it, you see the good and the bad. If you're looking at it from the outside, it's just a romantic vision and you can really embrace it and maybe go too far, you know, in in a way that it becomes um, more theatrically beautiful. Right. We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be back with Dave Cobb. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the Outlaw Country Music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Dave Cobb. Let's talk more about producing. So how did you end up in the, in 1999, you find yourself starting to produce? How'd that, how did it come about? How did it switch from being the studio guitar player? Well. I was in a band again at that time signed and, and it just felt like it was, it was, I was stuck because the, the label was trying to sell to another label and I wasn't going to ever get out of this deal. So, um, so I started producing friends, but basically I just fucking lied. I said I was a producer. I wasn't a fucking producer. I don't know shit about producing. I didn't go to producing school. You know, I didn't know shit. I just fucking made it up one day. It's like, oh, I'm a producer. And then I'm, you know, then I'm like, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta go to Los Angeles because I, I want to do rock and roll records and I gotta be out there. And when I got out there, I was producing a couple little things here and there and met a producer manager. And all of a sudden I was a legitimate producer, you know, I was on a producer roster. So I kind of lied my way into the whole thing, you know, and then after I really work with Shooter Jennings, I, I, I met this guy, Jamie Johnson through him. And then we had some records kind of work with him. And then I met Sturgill Simpson through him and we did Sturgill met a modern record. And then uh, Jason Isbell just kind of kept rolling, you know, what would have been the, uh, the rock artists that you would have moved out in the hopes of getting to work with at that time? Well, I did. I mean, I would have, I would have loved to work with, you know, Paul Rogers on something, you know, I'd have loved to work yeah. with, you know, anything you know relating to the, the stuff i grew up in I'm, i mean obviously ozzy or 
or, or any of the bands that that I really loved growing up. Humble Pie, that would have been a dream one, but he was Steve, Steve Marriott or somebody like that at the time. Um, but I didn't get to work with any of that stuff. Um, but I did fi- uh, work with this band, Rival Sons, that kind of took off in the rock world. And I've gotten to work with uh, a bunch of rock bands through them. So I still get to do quite a bit of rock and roll. And I still love it. But yeah, man, the producer thing, I, I just I fell in love with it because I've always been a studio rat. Even when I was in a band or a session player, I love being in the studio. I love working really fast capturing a moment like like you said like a yearbook and just remembering that moment and um and i and i I was a session player so i played drums and bass and guitar so i love helping people find the parts and and um i just love getting involved in the songs and and just being around it and even if you know my day is done i'll hang around the studio two or three hours later and just screw off and look at stuff you know so I i have the same feeling about a studio that i had when i got my first real guitar i remember getting an sg really bad 70s like the worst one uh gibson sg and putting it into my bed and just looking at it until i fell asleep and i remember smelling the case the smell of a gibson guitar in a case you know and i feel that way about a studio still i just you can't get me out of them you know and if i have a day off i'm either looking at stuff about studios or reading about you know engineers or producers or whatever it is i just i'm i'm completely enthralled with everything about studios you know you typically play on the records that you produce i do i play a lot jimmy miller uh one of my favorite producers he produced my favorite era stone stuff you know kind of let it bleed through exile he was a drummer and he would go in from what i was told he would play percussion with the band and he kind of help kind of guide the rhythm and the feel. So a lot of records, I, I play acoustic guitar uh, as a shaker, you know, I treat it like a shaker or I play a shaker or whatever it is. And instead of having a click, I'll just become, you know, the, the click or the human click for it. So yeah, I like being in there. I don't, I don't know if I can feel it unless I'm kind of in it. And even if I'm not playing on something, I'm in the room with the band. I don't, I don't, I never like the separation of control room and studio. I love being in, in the middle of it the whole time. I love the instant communication, especially if you have a guitar on, you can go, okay, why don't we try this part for a bridge or try this chord here? I feel like it's um, it's a bit of a crutch to have a, a, a guitar on the whole time. It, it helps me work faster, you know? Absolutely. Are you ever surprised after being on the floor, going in and hearing it through speakers? For sure. It usually sounds like shit. <laughs> no but uh no usually i feel like you can feel the take as it as it goes down i feel like you kind of feel that one but i've definitely been surprised where ones i didn't think was the one was the one too you know somebody else may may have a better idea somebody said you know that that second one we should listen to that one too and then they're right and i'm wrong somebody told me a long time ago uh, about sometimes and actually i think it's somebody used to work with you uh greg gordon uh, yeah. he was kind of a mentor to me. Greg Gordon told me, he's like, sometimes it just feels like a record. And, and I'm always looking for that take. It's like, it just feels like a record. You know, I don't know what it is. I don't know what that means. Yeah. Sometimes it just kind of comes together in a funny way where like the take before it, everyone's doing pretty much the same thing. And the next one's not like everyone's playing a lot better. It's pretty similar, but all of a sudden it goes from like, mediocre to mind-blowing it's wild. Yeah, i don't know what that is but it is, there's something to it and god i think i i think um you know being in the studio you kind of just make stuff up and 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 it just it's a lot of feeling as opposed to being clinical about it i'm never clinical about anything i don't i don't think i have that kind of 
smarts to be super clinical about stuff. I'm always looking for what what was it about that one? It's just like you're saying, that take, that's the one. I don't know why. I can describe it to you. Do you do a lot of tend to do a lot of takes or no? Not really, but I, I have done lots of takes on certain things. I mean, usually I think by fourth or fifth take, I think you kind of have a good sense of the song. You know, I'm not somebody that goes in there and just says, try something else. I think I'm always kind of really involved in, and and if if there's a part that's missing, I'll, I'll suggest something. I don't necessarily write it, but I'll suggest to somebody to write it. So I like to work super quick, super fast, and just get it down because I think the attention span, mainly I'm blaming it on myself, I think goes after you do tons of takes. But there's uh, there's definitely been times where we've recorded a song and felt pretty good about it, listened to it later, go like, I don't know if we got it. I'll just recut it. It's easier than, I don't think, you know, I don't think I could cut 90s takes of a song. I think I'd be over it. You know, what about you? How do you do with takes? What do you do? It really depends on the artist. It goes different ways. Sometimes it's, sometimes it happens in, you know, one or two or two or three takes. And sometimes it's, I've been on projects where we've done, I don't know, 90 takes or something. You know, like it's, wow. it depends on the artist. Yeah, I love going in and and usually I try to get you know two songs a day done still. Nice. And it's not not it's not because it's like a, a bragging right to get that done, but I just love the sense of completion. I mean, it may not be totally complete, but just the basic of two songs. Yeah. And then then I like kind of goofing off. I, I'm I, I really value goofing off in the studio, which is probably something I should never say out loud, <laughs> especially when when labels are paying me money to make records. I shouldn't tell them that I love goofing off in the studio. But I think there's a lot of the the, the time of camaraderie and joking around and listening to records and that informs what the record becomes. Absolutely. And sometimes um, sometimes the best ideas come in the non-work time in the studio. Always the yeah. best ideas. <laughs> Always. Yeah. I produced the last Strokes album and on that I had them come to the studio and just jam every day with the idea of creating something new. Because in their minds, you know, the album was written. They already had all the songs. Like, come in, play every day before I get there for an hour. And when I get there, you know, have something to play for me that you didn't have when you got to the studio. But that you make in that hour. And a couple of things ended up being on the album, coming out of those sort of just experimental before the real session starts playing you know and you're recording the whole time right uh we were recording all, the whole time but it it was more about the writing of it it was more about them being in the room together and playing sometimes it actually the take came from that so cool play time sometimes it was just like oh this is really good if we chop it up like this and then make it into a song and then they would play it wow that is so brilliant that is so smart shit right just write it down <laughs> again. And, and that, I'll tell you, the idea for that came from the fact that they all, while they all came from New York and grew up, you know, playing together all the time, as bands get older, they ended up moving to all different places. So they don't really get to play as a band as much as they used to. So they were coming together for the first time in, you know, really years to make a record. And it felt like even if nothing came from it writing, just being in the room playing together as a band with no stakes would end up having a good effect on the performances later in that day. It's also a different, like when you're trying to execute something and you know what it is, is different than when you're just playing free to make something up. And I thought having those muscles open, those make something up muscles open 
to bring into the performance of the thing we know we're doing could be a good thing and turned out to be. That is absolutely brilliant. Probably made them feel like they were in rehearsal space, you know, in the you know, parents' basement or whatever when they're 15 again or something, you know? Yeah. Really sharp. I love that idea. I'm going to steal it. I'll send you a text. Yeah, I think it's any anything we can do to get an artist to tune into their lives at the time that they were doing their either their best work or the time that they m- most loved what they did. You know, because if you work with some artists that, that have been doing it for a long time, it has become a job. Right. Whereas when you're first doing it, there's usually much more of a passion in the process. And you can imagine the difference between making your first or second album and making your 40th album, yeah. you know, or your 50th album. Those are different things. No, you're absolutely right. That is such a smart concept. Just the uh, have them get together and play. That doesn't happen. You're, you're right. After a band's been together for a while, they don't really do that anymore, you know? Yeah. It was one of the, I can remember when I worked with Metallica suggesting, because they're a very popular band, you know, very well-known, well-loved band, you can rely on the fact that people are going to listen to a Metallica record and that goes into your process of people pay attention to us. Right. And that's not always, when you're starting, that's not the case. So one of the writing assignments was, imagine there was no such band as Metallica. And imagine you guys are going to enter a Battle of the Bands contest next week. And you have to write music that's going to blow everybody away in the room. And nobody knows who you are. Oh, man. That's why you're Rick Rubin. <laughs> that is brilliant. I'm, I'm taking notes because those are just brilliant, brilliant statements. It's so true, though. It's very true. I've, I've absolutely been in the studio with, with artists who've made multiple records. And, and they go, you know, oh, let's do a groove like blah, 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 like our other record. And we need one of these for the record because that's what we do. That We always have, you know, the one you know, acoustic song on the record, you know, that's, that's what you're saying is so brilliant and valid because there really isn't, I mean, people get attracted to when they discover a band and I guess getting a band to rediscover, you know, that, that themselves too is, I don't know. That's so smart. So smart. It's I could remember when I first said to Johnny Cash, like the goal would be to make the best album you've ever made. And he looked at me like I was insane. Like, like that just seemed like, you know, here's someone who had made a lot of records over a long period of time, a lot of records that people didn't care about for probably 20 years. He'd been dropped from two labels, and the suggestion that we're going to make his best album ever just seemed like so foreign. But that's the job. Like, why are we doing it if we're not going to make the best one ever? I mean, those records are really what bought a lot of people to Johnny Cash. So, you know, you, you captured discovery on those records. You know, the discovery of the audience discovered him, but also there's discovery in that sound. The, you know, the thing we were talking about earlier with White Mansions, with the the, cinem- the, the simple piano, that record was, or that record, those records you did with him were just beautiful examples of simplicity in, in, in the best way. Because you knew, I'm speaking for you here, but I feel like you knew it was about his voice and his narrative and everything that around that, that accompanies that is just supporting that. It's so smart. But wasn't I don't know that it was that thought out. It was more of a just part of the experiment of figuring out what worked. So it started with demos in my living room, and then we went into the studio with different players and tried different things. 
And then eventually the demos from the living room just sounded better. So being free enough to know that you could record it in your living room on the couch. And if you like it, then that's the record. That's okay. So smart. It's so smart. Yeah, that, that stuff is absolutely brilliant. I think it redefined a lot, you know. And, and maybe maybe at the time, and I'm just speculating, like country was radio only. And I think those records kind of, you know, I don't know if there was a viral was the word at the time, but they went viral and kind of beat the system in a lot of ways. And I thought, I think that's really cool. One of the best things that came from that was other grown up artists telling me, I feel like I can, like I can try to make something good now. Yeah. You know, like, like it, they saw at that point in Johnny's career that he could be received well, whereas other people just sort of thought it can never happen again. And then they would, you know, raise their game. That's an interesting thing that people even think that way. You know, I think there's such value in making records for adults. You know, I think a lot of people just angle for whatever, you know, the the big immediate gratification hit is. But man, adults are out there and adults grew up at a time when you paid for music and you go to shows and you live a lifestyle around an artist. And I think records like that, the cash stuff you did, they're adult records, even though kids found them and discover them, they're just, it's adult music. And I think there's so much value to that, you know? And I, I hate to, I hate to think anybody who, who is a hero would think that way about their careers. Cause you know, God, I would love to hear, you know, one of my favorite bands getting back together. I'd love to hear the zombies make a new record. Incredible. I would, I'd be the first in line to buy it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You know, and, and that guy, can still sing unbelievably well, you know? Yeah. So I think there's probably a, a li list of people that I, that I would love to hear make new records, you know, reach out. I'm scared, man. Rod Argent. Come on. <laughs> yeah. What a hell of a player, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I, I would never reach out to anybody, but, uh, but really? definitely I might have his email. If I can find his email, I'm sending it to you and you're going to reach out. Okay. I'll tell, I'll tell him I'll put in the preference. Rick Rubin said, and then maybe go answer my email back. You can blame me all you want. I want to hear the record that you make with the zombies. <laughs> well, I'll call you, man. You, you produce it with me. <laughs> I would love to do a record with you one day. That's on my list of, of things to do, you know? I'm sure we will find a way to make that happen. All right, man. That'd be great. Cool, man. All right. Well, thanks for everything. A pleasure speaking to you. I, always, man. Hopefully I'll see you one day in the, in the, in the future when the world gets normal. Thanks to Dave Cobb for running through his career and inspiration with Rick. You can hear all of our favorite Dave Cobb-produced tracks on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of our new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like us, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast app. Our theme music is by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? 
a room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.